Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hey, everybody. Other members of our group this week are our friends, David Valancourt, Master of Science and GMP expert. Welcome back. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. And first time participant, we are really happy to have Jocelyn, the director of West Coast Strategy for Headset, which is a fascinating website which collects real-time data about cannabis product sales. Welcome to the show. What's happening, my friends? Awesome. Well, we have a great show for you today. We're going to discuss a pilot randomized study for ketamine uh, for multiple sclerosis. We're also going to talk about the paradoxical psychological effects of uh, LSD. And our news today includes discussing cannabis stocks, uh, orgasms related to DMT, psychedelics therapy, and socioeconomic burdens, as well as why the route of administration matters for ketamine. And away we go. Before we go, though, I should also mention we're going to try a new game. It's going to be Guess the Phony Cannabinoid or Psychedelics Headline. I'll read some real headlines, and one of them will be completely made up. Now we're ready to go. So our first story comes from CNN.com. Now, um, and there's speculation that cannabis stocks are going to soar with Biden taking over the White House. And, you know, November has given people a number of surprises. And, and just sort of in, in the last couple months, we've seen cannabis stocks go up and down. And I got to, you know, since it's your first time on the show, Jocelyn, this, this first prompt comes to you, you know, Industry executives seem to be happy about the direction the country is going to be going. Um, but from a marketing perspective, do you think it's going to be easier to market and sell cannabis products with a change in the White House? Uh, how much stock, I guess, would you put in cannabis stock surging under a new administration? Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to give the perspective, given that I'm meeting with people all throughout the supply chain, so really on the West Coast. Um, and so I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I think, you know, um, this is going to be great in terms of destigmatization. I think that it's going to address, um, it's going to address decriminalization, but the problem that I see is that it's not going to address any of 280E or safe banking, any of the tax burdens that are making it very hard for businesses to be profitable. And so when I'm out and talking to people, every, we're seeing cannabis, like from headsets perspective, we're seeing cannabis sales grow month over month, right? So from a market perspective, we're seeing new consumers come in, we're seeing sales grow overall in the market. But the problem is, is that hasn't really trickled down to all the businesses because it's very burdensome for them, the municipal taxes, the state taxes, and then the federal taxes, and they don't have the same breaks as other businesses. So a lot of these cannabis business, businesses just aren't profitable at this point. Point. So in order for there to be some significant change, which we're going to see the stock market, you know, pop off at that point, I think we have to address those issues to make sure that these businesses are sustainable and profitable. And I'm unclear on how this administration will address that. Decriminalization is a wonderful thing that's going to be very important for us. It's going to bring in new consumers, but I don't know how these businesses are going to thrive in that. It's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that is, is very surprising to me is to hear that a lot of these companies are not yet profitable. 
And I'm going to look at David Valancourt, who goes and makes these companies follow GMP compliance. And David, is GMP going to play a role with the profitability of these companies? Do you think it's, it's a burden to them? Or in this new environment that Jocelyn is describing, is it going to play a role? Yeah, so no, I haven't talked about this too much with you guys, but you know, GMPs um, really go symbiotically, at least to how we develop them for our clients and customers with like lean manufacturing and like lean and operational efficiencies take something that's, you know, maybe not well organized and characterized and makes it profitable looking at, you know, value stream mapping and waste reduction, et cetera. And, you know, in the absence of, you know, reform around say 280E, right, where the effective tax rate is just astronomical, these companies, to your point, are still losing money. You know, it's just simple cash in is less than cash out besides investment infusions. And until that changes and companies become profitable, I mean, it's it's a non-sustainable business from just, a, you know, as a human, if you make, say, 50000 a year, but you spend $60,000, you are going to run out of money and you need a, you need to change that. Um, so I think that's one of the issues that is still out there, as you mentioned, um, you know, Jocelyn. And the other thing that I wanted to add, though, if this helps to answer your question, um, uh, you know, Jehan is that, you know, Kamala Harris sponsored the MORE Act, right? She was the lead sponsor in the Senate. And they're looking for that as a, you know, if that passes uh, between now and the new administration, um, that would be, I think, some, that will help with the significant momentum that I think 2021, to your point of like being cautiously optimistic, will will carry. I mean, it's a start. It's not, it's not the end all be all, but it's, significant progress, which is great to see momentum moving in the forward direction versus, you know, a lot of times I think we, whether in the cannabis industry, even in life can feel like one step forward, two steps back and three steps sideways. Like, I think this is more two steps forward and a half step sideways. So I'm excited. And I think if you look at um, the cannabis indices, we're seeing just since November, the beginning of November, they've grown between 15 to 20%, all three of them. But this has been after a major decline over the last two years since legalization. <laughs> so it's some um, forward momentum that's progress, um, but we have a, a ways to go. Too, uh, so, yeah. Just, uh, I was just going to add one thing to, to what Jocelyn was actually just saying is that when I read this, I went and I looked at the stock ticker chart for Canopy and for Aurora. And just like Jocelyn called out, it's actually like it went down a lot in the last, you know, 18 months, two years. So when CNN is saying prices soar, well, when you look at the ticker over a year or five years, the headline might read a little bit differently. And this is the thing I call out on the show all the time, which is, you know, people want their headlines to be read. They want their studies to be read. So I think it's it's good for the readers to kind of do what we're, or the listeners to do what we're doing here, where we get a little analytical about it and, and don't just, you know, run with the title. So. Well, if I could add maybe a plug for headset and it's all about the data, right? Like, let's not look at today's data. Let's like it holistically and let's look at the trends. You know, is it 8 a.m. on a Tuesday, you see a spike? Is it because you saw that last Tuesday or is it because you've been tracking the last 52 Tuesdays? And to your point, you know, Nigam, uh, great, 10% rise, but when you were at $120 and now you're at $10, a 10% rise to $11, if I bought in at 120, 10% is, is, pen, is peanuts. Great, great points, everyone. Uh, <laughs> we're going to move on to our next uh unrelated topic and that comes from us from double blind mag uh, doubleblindmag.com puts, puts out some really amazing stories that we've have discussed on the show and our next story is uh from their website and it's entitled do orgasms cause the release of dmt now uh 
DMT is is naturally in the brain, and it's it's linked to um, things like near death experiences, birth, and other mystical experiences. But it seems to be unclear if this plant products um, dubbed the spirit molecule actually is released during orgasms. Now, Nigam, um, based on your personal experience with orgasms, um, have the green aliens and the pyramids appeared to you at any point uh, during an orgasm or do you think the jury's still out? Okay, so um, I, I was a little bit jealous when I was reading this article because it actually focuses mostly on women and um, really interesting to read, but I'm reading all these amazing experiences and how uh, the orgasm can be equivalent to like the, the DMT experience or high from actually taking the drug in an ayahuasca ceremony or in a, in a concentrated fashion or whatever. But there, there wasn't a single line about men can experience this too. It was all about um, women and a lot of experts on um, women's health and sexuality. So I really enjoyed reading the article but no, I have not seen the green alien, the green DMT aliens. <laughs> um, but I'm curious what, what other uh, people have experienced. Well, you know, that's a great point, Nigam. So, you know, Jocelyn, this article does focus um, and even interview an expert in women's health and sexual physiology. And, and you know, they kind of describe it, the effect as the shower of stars. But, you know, you're a marketing expert. Do you, do you think that, you know, marketing that, hey, you don't even need to take psychedelics to get a psychedelic experience. Or, you know, would you see this being potentially used to market commercial psychedelics in the future? Um, like, hey, don't don't use a dating app, you can use our product. Or is that just like, way, way out there? Um, I'm not sure from the marketing perspective, but I'll say this. Okay, I found this article really interesting. And what I think is really interesting as someone who has tried various psychotropic substances. Um, I think what they do is there's a dissolution of the ego. And so what happens is that as your ego dissolves, you become more in touch with your primal self. And so when you're becoming more in touch with your primal self, you get into this space of creativity, freedom, spirituality, everything is just kind of you're more open. So when you have that freedom, you're able to enjoy experiences in a different way. And so I absolutely believe that there is truth to this article because that's just what happens when you have this dissolution of ego. You're not attached to anything. So you can enjoy something completely in its moment and it's true freedom. And that makes any experience exponentially better. That's that's lovely. Um, and, and this article on Double Blind has some really uh, amazing quotes. Um, and I just um, want to read one of them, which is uh, from Strassman's DMT, the spirit molecule. And that's DMT release, which is stimulated by both deep meditation and intense sexual activity may result in especially pronounced psychedelic effects. And it seems like we all kind of agree on that. But David, you've been awfully quiet while we've been talking about the birds and the bees and the DMTs. So do you have any thoughts on this article? I think back to the fact that in the 90s, you know, the endocannabinoid system was this novel concept. And whoa, we make our own like endogenous cannabinoids. What a crazy concept. And so here we are in 2020 talking about DMT and how that or some sort of an analog might be created, whether it's in the pituitary gland or whatnot. Like, wow. Like, I mean, we almost shouldn't be surprised in terms of 
looking back to you know the endocannabinoid system and how much we're still discovering every day as scientists in our body. Excellent points, everyone. And I certainly would say that um, I would probably write an op-ed for a scientific journal if I ever saw a shower of stars visited alien cities after uh, a partner had given me an orgasm that resulted in that. Um, I think that that is a fascinating aspect of our side of our consciousness that we don't normally explore. And, and speaking of psychedelics, I want to talk about our next story from Bazinga.com, which is, can psychedelic therapy ease the socioeconomic burden of addiction? Now, when it comes to cannabinoid and cannabis preparations, you know, we have seen some potential decreases in drug abuse, but also potentially some increases in other vulnerable populations, a bit of a yin and yang uh, approach anytime you introduce a, a new substance commercially into society, whether it's caffeine or kava or, you know, extra strength, um, you know, herbal supplements. There's always a concern there. But we're looking, you know, in the United States over trillion dollars a year in costs related to the burden on the criminal justice system, medical costs, losses in productivity, and the economy just seems to continue to take hit after hit. Uh, from these various drugs, pun intended. So there's a lot of interest in estimating the true cost of drug and alcohol addiction to the taxpayer and to society. And so as we move forward with decriminalizing psychedelics and those natural products that they come from, is this going to potentially increase certain areas, uh, certain burdens, or decrease them? Um, you know, David, do you, you know, what if, uh, sort of blank check question here, what, um, what, you know, in your experience of visiting facilities and stuff um, and, and being involved in the industry, what would be needed to have an improvement in society from, from you know, more people consuming psychedelics versus like, you know, how, how is it, is it adding it to beer <laughs> or is that, you know, that not the way we go? Do we, we put a little LSD in cigarettes so people get the smoking cessation effect, a <laughs> uh, reduction in nicotine craving. Um, you know, because you're a GMP guy and I start to think of, you know, hey, uh, I go to Starbucks, I'd like my mocha frappuccino with cannabis, psychedelics, and vodka. Maybe that's not such a great idea. There's a lot of factors there. Well, wow, yeah, you've got me. Um, I got a few things running through my, my brain right now related to that. I mean, one is, you know, just having been back in Portland recently, and I know this is, you know, probably not unique to Portland, but the West Coast and the industry in general is, you know, they, they just put CBD in it, right? I mean, at a for a dollar, you can have a shot of CBD in your beer, your coffee, your, you know, vegan burrito, whatever. Like, literally, it's where will we stop? So, well, I don't want to maybe go back to the science experiment of the 60s and 70s where we we were, you know, dropping in some LSD and drinking water in Germany or wherever that was. Um, I think, you know, to your point, you know, we're not far off and from seeing it put almost anywhere. And what I really liked about this article was that it, you know, what I took away was, you know, this quote where they talk about, you know, while the notion of, I'll just quote from the article, you know, while the notion of using drugs to treat drug addiction may seem counterintuitive, the medical establishment has been using medical or medication assisted treatment to treat drug and alcohol addiction for a very long time. 
And, you know, with friends that are you know, medical doctors and, you know, a, a mother who spent 25 years working the ER as the intake person that literally saw the feet, people get dropped off, like literally shoved out of their back seat of the car because they're on an oxy overdose and speed off with, you know, burnt rubber left behind. And she has to go out with a nurse to like figure out if this person has any ID and if they're breathing to, you know, bring them into the hospital. Like, yeah, this is a thing. And uh, we shouldn't be vilifying it. And wow, a, a trillion dollars, that's a lot of money. And I like that they can put money on that and um, tie back to like, let's get over this like weird stigma that we have and get a little more creative with science and medicine that actually works. And why are we limiting ourselves to things that, you know, just because they're historically stigmatized. Great points, David. Um, you know, Jocelyn, I want to talk to you a little bit about data because what we don't have is data. You know, I wish we could time travel into the future when psychedelics are commercially available and look at some of the sales data and how we interpret that. But maybe you can speak to how, you know, headsets data can be used to inform public health data. You know, I'm sure you can see sales increasing or decreasing and tie them to certain events, but could you maybe offer some, you know, sagely advice about why it's important to track the data that headsets tracks and how could it be used to protect public health or protect consumers? Okay, so I'll speak to that in a second as it's related to cannabis, because actually this is one of those questions that when I was reading this article, this is something that I think actually we should not look at from a data perspective. I think there's a lot of science around addiction and there's a lot of data around addiction. But when I was reading this article, um, to me, addiction is related to the ego because when people succumb to addiction, it's because they're letting something that's in their own psychological mind dominate their thoughts. And often when we're talking about addiction and we're talking about uh, the impact that it has on our society from a socioeconomic standpoint, or should we be treating a drug with another drug, um, Psychedelic drugs are often very misunderstood because we don't come in it from the approach of how this is touching someone's ego. And so what happens is these addicts, when they're in their own mind and they're letting their, their psychological you know, drives kind of take over their existence, they're just treating that with another potentially something else. They're not treating the real core of their issue, which is getting in touch with themselves to understand what is going on with them psychologically, to then be able to face to face, like eye to eye, address those issues within yourself and then get out of that to become a productive member of society. A lot of these psychotropic drugs, that's what they do. That's why people go do ayahuasca. That's why people are looking to psilocybin because these are the things that are going to help us get in touch with ourselves, dissolve our ego, and then be able to live in our most authentic state. And so when I'm you know, reading this article, I think that's where I would like to see the conversation shift to is really about how do we wake individuals up to themselves so that they can then contribute back. So from a data perspective and from the cannabis side, I mean, listen, for many years of my life, I've been a longtime cannabis enthusiast for 10 years. It's why I joined the in industry. And for me, I used it to check out for many years. I mean, most of the time I was using it because I was not awake myself and I was dealing with my own internal ego struggles, not realizing that's what I was really dealing with. So when I would use cannabis, I would use it to check out. Whereas when I, I, 
woke up per se, um, three years ago, I started using cannabis in a different way where it started amplifying my creative pursuits. It started amplifying my spirituality. And so now I'm going to use it in a different way, or I use psychotropic drugs in a different way. So I guess like to answer your question from the data side, I don't know that I would love to see data on this because I see sales growing every month. I see more people coming in. I see us destigmatizing cannabis at faster rates. I'd like to see the same thing happen with psychotropic drugs, which I think it will, as we've seen Oregon pass, pass it recently. So these are all forward steps, but I think we have to address the core, which is comes back to the ego, really. Yeah, I, I like that. I might say it a little bit differently in terms of ego because we adapt to things and our ego adapts to things and, and sort of these maladaptive coping mechanisms that we think we need to get through certain situations or we rely on as crutches. And so from that perspective, I, I, I think I can understand where you're coming from. And then something else you said that just cracked me up was cannabis enthusiast. And this is a term I actually used, uh, I tried to pitch to academic societies, especially ones that focus on cannabinoid research in around 2012, and a huge influx of people who could not check the box of being a postdoc, a PhD, an academic researcher, or a PI of a lab. They needed a new category. And I proposed cannabis enthusiasts as the catch-all for people who didn't fit in. Because why else would you be coming to a cannabinoid research site? It's not saying you're a cannabis user. You're just enthusiastic. You're the world's most enthusiastic, you know, layperson who's interested in learning about cannabis science. And I think it's, it's, it's a valid point. Um, Nigam, you, you've listened to David and Jocelyn. What would you like to add to this conversation? So I, I really liked everyone's points and uh jocelyn thank you for kind of uh sharing your perspective i i really like that and to speak to that a little bit but taken in, in a little more um chemical way to speak specifically to what they're calling out in the article so the uh pharmaceutical grade drug that they're specifically referencing is a it's it's um basically a minor component from ibogaine so you know we talk about psilocybin we talk about lsd all this stuff but um in ayahuasca is becoming more known and used in the western like in the western and like the north american world but um ibogaine is another um of these uh entheogenic plants which is being more well known and more studied and the compound that they're discussing here is this 18 mc and i won't say the long chemical name that that comes from but this is basically a novel iboga alkaloid uh it's a minor component um and this is similar to folks who are familiar with advancements or studies for like psilocybin mushrooms there are a lot of people who think similar to the entourage effect in cannabis where we have you know multiple uh compounds and molecules that all matter together it's the same thing for uh psychedelic mushrooms and people are researching these minor alkaloids there too so um but plugging back into what jocelyn said they're basically trying to find something from ibogaine that has the beneficial effects um but not the detrimental effects that achieve what jocelyn is saying to help these people uh kind of uh adjust or reset their mentality uh to you know move forward in a healthy way Great points. Great points. And, and speaking of moving forward in healthy ways, our, our next article from Principium Psychiatry is about why the route of administration matters for ketamine. Now, ketamine is a very interesting disassociative psychedelic. Uh, there are 
places you can go, not very many, but you, where you can get an IV, IV infusion of ketamine. Now, I, you know, don't like needles. So, you know, why can't I just take a pill or intranasal spray or rub on some ketamine CBD cream with uh, on my shoulder or something? So, so you know, Nigam, your 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 PhDs, you know, heavily in chemistry. You know, when we talk about bioavailability, why why do we want to do intravenous ketamine for medical purposes? Like, why? So, what's you know? Yeah, no, this this is really important, and I actually. I like the way this website framed this. I think um, this is actually kind of information on a ketamine clinics website in New York. And, and uh, actually, we critiqued another one recently where we were kind of asking a lot of these questions. The, the prior one was a little more ambiguous. This one actually liked for a few reasons. So one is that they gave this very good explanation, which I'll just share in brief here about bioavailability. They're basically saying, in its essence, bioavailability is the difference between what you're putting in your body and what is actually getting to the uh, targeted place where it's trying to go, in this case, your brain. So they share, I'll just rattle off the numbers, intravenous ketamine is, they're claiming 100% bioavailability. They put in your bloodstream, it all goes to your brain. Intramuscular, interestingly, uh, is 93%. I think that's more for like a localized muscular thing but still it's pretty high for that and then you're going to see this drop off heavily intranasally 25 to 50 percent sublingual which is putting it under your tongue is 30 percent and then just swallowing it like in a pill is 16 to 24 percent so um the other thing that i thought was really great that they shared here and we've seen this with these other ketamine clinics is that they're actually injecting a very, very small dose continuously over about an hour. So think about being in a hospital and you have like the, the saline solution, the hydration solution kind of consistently over time. So they have this incredible amount of control where if someone's having a bad experience, they can stop the drip. And it's not like you're getting a big dose, like if you took a pill or, or something similar. So the last thing that I'll say here is reading this actually made me a little bit jealous because I do also work in uh, formulation in the cannabis space. And we see this all the time, these issues of bioavailability, these issues of control. And wow, when I, I, I was just outright jealous when they're saying we have this ultimate kind of control. So yeah, that, that's a really good point, Nigam. And, and, and David, I, I'm sure when you're out there trying to help people standardize their processes and products, this must come up a lot. So look, this, this website, principiumpsychiatry.com, who a friend of our show, Dr. Jason Arouche, like recommended what we talk on the show. Um, thank you, Jason. But, but David, you know, can the cannabis industry match this clarity when it comes to bioavailability? Or, you know, is it even more well understood in the cannabis industry? <laughs> You know, well, I mean, I would always defer back to Nigam in terms of the bioavailability and like nanoemulsification, some of the work that I know he's done in the formulation world with, you know, Dr. V and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I think to your point, right, uh, it's something I would say it's whether or not the industry is there, it needs to be there. Um, and, you know, I think of like 
Juana here in Colorado where I live and you know they they've got this like kind of fast acting gummy right where now you know instead of waiting one to three hours depending on whether you have a full or empty stomach they're claiming five to 15 minutes of absorption and that's all back to bioavailability and how the molecules are created and how they're you know ingested absorbed the route of administration right and we need to think about that because from a scaling standpoint if you can put an IV drip you know five nanograms can do go a lot further than, you know, 50 nanograms and, you know, with sublingual or whatnot. And so the industry needs to understand its target market, I would say, and what they need, you know, the kind of dosing and the, the rate and the onset, and then calculate back from there and develop products that actually meet that need based on the bioavailability. So hopefully really, that helps. Yeah. No, that, that those are terrific points, David. And Jocelyn, um, you know, when I think of intravenous, I don't typically think of cannabinoids. And I know that headset tracks a lot of product. And I guess just a simple kind of question here is, would it be difficult or what would you need to track um, sort of local administration of cannabinoids? So, you know, most people buy products and take them home or take them to a facility where they're going to administer them. But what about something like a, you know, CBD infusion? or that sort of on-site product, what would you need to be able to track those products? I guess it would just be product sales through, through the headset um, software. Could, would you give us a little bit of insight on that? Yeah, um, so the way we track all of the data in real time is because we're hooked up with the point of sale systems that are in dispensaries. So we're collecting all of that data in real time by our systems connecting via an API connection. So anytime something is sold at a dispensary, we have to have a team. So in cannabis, we don't have UPC codes yet as an industry. So what we have to do is employ this entire team that's going through all of this point of sale data. And as you can imagine, when there's a bud tender that's putting all of the information into their point of sale or into metric, you could put, let's say, blue dream. That could be blue space dream, blue no space dream, blue dreams up with a Z, blue dream with a S. We have to have a team that goes through and normalizes all of that data. And then we can report on that. So unless an industry is somewhat mature and has some way of some standardized way of, you know, a, a UPC code or a way of collecting all that data, it's very hard to do this. That's why you don't see a whole, we're the only data company that's doing this in real time in this way, because we've been doing this for six years and have figured out kind of the model for it to work. I don't know how more, you know, less mature industries that don't have that standard way of tracking any sales would, would do this. Um, yeah, but on this ketamine article, um, I also want to say, I don't know a lot about the consumption methods in which w people are consuming it, but the article did make me think about this experience that I had, um, when I was flying down to Palm Springs, you know, pre COVID. And I met this woman who's a doctor at Stanford and she had just been going through some trials with ketamine and she was, you know, I guess I'll say, um, intravenously shooting it or whatever. And, um, she was dealing with some very intense psychological issues. And when she had been going through this treatment with ketamine, it she was just giving me her perspective how it entirely, everything I was talking about with ego and you facing yourself and having some way to be able to understand what's going on within yourself, that was this woman's experience. She was a scientist, academic teacher at Stanford, and she didn't have any other way of kind of connecting in and understand what was going on with her. And when she had consumed, you know, ketamine in this way, it 
opened up her, her, as she described it, it expanded her mind and put her into this other world to which she could get in touch with herself and really address what was going on. And she couldn't connect the dots without having some other way to be able to help her face something that she didn't want to face until she had something that forced her to look at this. I thought it was very powerful. I'm very excited about the potential of ketamine and what it can do because I see it uh, being able to help in those ways. Yeah, fascinating points, everyone. And, and it does make me, you know, as a researcher who, who looked at pharmacology and drug combinations, to see such clear bioavailability data about a product. And, um, and just saying it goes right to your brain is like a positive thing is still a concept I have to get used to. <laughs> um, well, that's going to wrap up our, our news and popular science article section, and we're going to move on to our rapid fire discussion. So for rapid fire science, we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about you know, two articles. And our first article today, we are so proud of our colleague and member of the show, uh, Jason Sarush, who actually co-authored this article entitled Pilot Randomized Active Placebo-Controlled Trial of Low-Dose Ketamine for the Treatment of Multiple Sclerosis-Related Fatigue. Now, in this double-blind randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial, they had 18 subjects with MS who reported fatigue, and they received a single intravenous infusion of ketamine, about five megs for kids, uh, uh, for those of you playing the home game. Now, as well as uh, midolazam, and the primary outcome was change in daily fatigue severity uh, following the seven days after um, the infusion. So basically, what they found were these ketamine infusions were safe and well, to well tolerated, well, but there weren't significant changes in the daily fatigue score after seven days. However, there might be a secondary analysis on the benefit of ketamine um, for the reduction of longer term fatigue and severity in people with MS. Now, this is a very interesting article. I was not aware of it until Jason had pointed out to us because we had been discussing um, ketamine on the show previously and we we're looking for clinical research. Now, um, Nigam, I'd like to go to you first about this study and just ask you, was there something that surprised you about this article? Or were you like, yeah, that's what I'd expect. I'd expect that daily fatigue wouldn't change within a week with ketamine. It might take longer, or there's no way in heck that ketamine's changing your daily fatigue score. Like, how, what were some surprises for you in this article? Yeah, so, um, okay. I'm going to say something that was not surprising before I say something that were surprising was that uh, there were 18 subjects, so I always call this out again and again about the you know small amount of subjects for some of these trials. So, eh, I guess I'm getting used to that. So it was pretty cool. I was not expecting uh, this thing that you had called out that the statistically significant reduction in fatigue came later, 24 20, or 28 days later. Um, so that's just so interesting and. Sometimes when these papers call out at the end, and these results mean we need to learn more. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, hand-waving, blah, blah. But in this case, uh, I really agreed. I thought that was so cool. I, I want to learn more about the um, mechanism of how this is actually working. And the uh, I guess the other last thing that I would call out is that another trend that I, that we're seeing here is that, and they call this out, 
in the paper is that there are no uh, good treatments for this right now. So, and this is the thing we're saying with psychedelics as well. Like we were talking about um, with addiction, like we have these, you know, other, you know, treatments, but they're, they're not that effective. So this is a place where like psychedelics is, is breaking new ground and who knows, maybe ketamine is breaking new ground on this fatigue thing. That is really a good point, Snigum. Um, that might be the case. But, you know, I want to go to Jocelyn for the, ne- for, for the next comment, you know, just sort of a little marketing perspective here. So I'm going to share an unrelated story, and maybe this will kind of help you understand what I'm getting at is, you know, I've tried a lot of different exercise programs, martial arts, and one that I've been trying during uh, the pandemic has been Tai Chi. However, the, the online instructor was like, you have to do it every day. And you got to wait till 30 days to really feel the life-changing benefits and have the chief flow through you and solve all your problems. And I was like, man, 30 days to get a benefit. I don't know. You're not really selling me on like these classes. (laughs) Um, So, you know, just from a marketing perspective, do you think people would be interested in a one-time use product that they may not feel it, uh, the benefits for 30 days with, is, is, you know, if you were trying to, you know, is this type of data potentially useful for marketing products or is it, you know, consumers are looking for fireworks as soon as they ignite the fuse, as it were. Um, would, would love to hear your comments on, on that. I mean, I'd imagine from a marketing perspective, people always want a quick fix, you know? So it's like, if you're going to sell them like, hey, take this one time thing and it's going to solve it. But the reality is, Everything is like in life is a practice. So if you want to change something, it requires that 30 days because you have to change your mindset to be able to have some, you know, instrumental change in your life. I found the study really interesting also that it was um, after what, 24 days or something, Nigam, we were saying, I agree with your point where I want to know more about why there was the lag to which there was then an effect because What's so interesting to me about the placebo effect is that our minds are so powerful. We don't even know how powerful our minds are at this point. I think of things like, have you had a Sour Patch Kid? And before you even put it in your mouth, you you feel it and you have the tingle feeling. Why does that happen? That happens because our brains are so powerful that it anticipates before this even goes into your mouth, what this is going to do, the experience you're going to have. And so you therefore are anticipating this experience. Your brain is connecting and saying, okay, this is about to happen. You're going to have this, you know, sour taste in your mouth and you get that feeling before you even put it in. So our brains are so powerful that when you're telling yourself, hey, I want to address fatigue and I'm going into this experience where I think this is going to help me. Therefore, our brains, it will help you. But for it to be this lag of 24 days later and then they're feeling less fatigue or, or whatever it is, I'm curious to know about that because that to me is signaling that, yes, there is actually some chemical compound or there is something that potentially can help address this. Um, but when it's the initial, you know, you're going into something and have an expectation of something, then you're probably going to have that experience so to change any behavior you have to have that extended consistent time to be able to make that change so but if you want to sell something to someone real quick people are always looking for that easy quick fix so they're going to go for that you'd probably do really well selling this take this one time and you're golden even if it 
even if it doesn't work, right? The It's the promise of the quick fix that sells it, right? I'm thinking about CBD and, and, you know, we're talking about this like silly stuff, you know, CBD pillows and all this kind of stuff, right? So I wonder if I can get my, the, the ketamine infusion takes 28 days to help with my fatigue, but the ketamine pillow, uh, the ketamine CBD pillow works right away, right? Yeah, but maybe. Um... You know, David, uh, I, I, as I gaze into your eyes, I, I can't tell if they're glassing over and you're going into a K-hole or if you are <laughs> really interested in this discussion. So it's getting my chi on trying. So, to. Well, you've, you've heard, uh, you know, Jocelyn kind of interweave the data and strategy around, you know, these types of products coming to market with, you know, single dose, wait 30 days, you know, like, sounds like a weird thing. Take one and call me in 30 days. Um, but David, give us some of you, you know, what comes to mind when you were scanning through this article and, and trying to digest it? Yeah, I mean, you know, for starters, I just have to give kind of that shameless plug to you guys for letting me come invite and be back on this show, because what I love about it is that we have like a pretty well-rounded, amazing perspectives. And, you know, the analogy I like to use with folks that are, you know, not in the science world is, you know, maybe we have, you know, from a from a very overly simplistic standpoint, we may have the solution to, you know, solve cure cancer, let's say, but if we can't communicate that to the world, then we actually don't have a cure. And I say that because the science behind it is very complicated and, you know, it's just not as simple. Otherwise we wouldn't even be here talking about these kinds of things and doing these, you know, clinical placebo randomly controlled trials. Um, and there's so many questions that Justin's been like, why did it take 28 days? What is it about that? You know, is it, what's, where's the psychosomatic versus like, you know, something in your body, your like bio biochemistry, et cetera. And how do you translate that and bring it back to what the consumer, you know, wants and needs and, uh, part of it is educating the idea of like, it's not a quick fix. It does take time, but it's going to benefit you in the long run. And just helping to translate that from science to reality is really just fascinating. So um, I really like, just, yeah, I, I hear sure. all that. There was one, uh, one thing that's kind of funny that on the, uh, when we're talking about this quick versus long-term and, and I was thinking about this with cannabis too, just now, uh, the, one of the side effects that these people felt was, euphoria right so it's like it's not like they're not going to enjoy their ketamine infusion it's just that like the fatigue thing is later and i think it's the same with cannabis people can enjoy cannabis but the long-term benefits come later so i just kind of want to say it out loud that it's not like there's no immediate benefit right well i don't know that violates the little known 11th commandment thou shall not be euphoric but um, we can address that later because uh, we're, we're running short on HLI time. So I want to move to our next article and then our game. And, and our next article is from Psychological Medicine, and it's entitled The Paradoxical Psychological Effects of Lysergic Acid Diethylamide, or LSD. And this is written by, I don't think anyone we personally know, but um, it is written by uh, Dr. Nutt, who is a very famous researcher. And so, Nigam, you'll be happy to know that this study included two more than the previous article. So there were 20 people in it. Um, but basically, they had 20 healthy volunteers receive 75 micrograms of LSD intravenously on one occasion and placebo on another in, in sort of a balanced order in at least two weeks separating sessions. And they assessed through a battery of altered states of consciousness questionnaire and, and psychomimetic states inventory, uh, a measure of optimism to just see what was sort of happening. And 
what was interesting is you know they finally found a little bit of everything a little cornucopia of effects they found um you know it was able to elicit psychosis like symptoms acutely yet improve psychological well-being in the mid to long term and it reminds me of something you know a friend of the show dr sarah jane ward said is you know she has family members who have uh, degenerative conditions like alzheimer's and you know, one relative has Alzheimer's and they're miserable and another one has Alzheimer's and is like really happy and just having a great time. Um, it kind of made me think of that. But, you know, when we think about these acute alterations in mood and, and fundamental modulation of cognition and increasing cognitive flexibility, it's really interesting to me to see that you can see all of this at the same time. And I don't know, I'm just trying to think from a data and strategy perspective for the marketplace you know, with these psychedelics potentially coming out and modified versions of them, you know, should we all just start um, filling out little, uh, you know, journals about our psychedelics use and tracking the effects? Or is there other considerations there? I mean, what comes to mind when you see articles like this? Um, I think what I think about is like, I guess from a data perspective is really understanding um people's experiences with it in things that you're, you couldn't get from a placebo effect, meaning that you couldn't get if you weren't actually in. And that, well, how about the figure one? You know, they show the altered states of consciousness, um, the ASC questionnaire, and it looks like a spider web and it has things like meaning and spiritual experience, bliss state, insightfulness, disembodiment, complex energy and imagery, audiovisual um, synesthesia. And they sort of, draw a little circle around what they experienced and you know are you know these are researchers who you know live in a little ivory tower you know i'm not i don't think they're taking lsd and going to like fish cover bands or anything like that but, but you know are terms like this helpful for kind of describing what you know your data needs in order to inform strategy yeah, I mean, those are the terms that I think you need probably with a little more color to them because that can be on a spectrum for people. And so there needs to be a little bit more definition to that because um, when people have visualizations, for example, uh, again, your mind is so powerful that you may think you're seeing something, but when you've had a psychotropic drug, you know the spectrum to which you're seeing things and having visualizations, but it could be for someone who hasn't and they're in the mindset of like, oh, I'm going to see something and they're anticipating it. And then they're looking at their wallpaper in a new way that they've never looked at their wallpaper before because they're just more aware that they're and anticipating they're going to have this experience. So from a data perspective or being to being able to really understand the differences in people's experiences and how it's going to have an impact for them in coming in contact contact with their ego or their own consciousness to address whatever it is they're wanting to address. I think there needs to be a little bit more definition around some of these traditional experiences that one would have when they're using a psychotropic drug. So what does it mean to have a visualization? What does it mean um, to, to have uh, an idea or a thought that might not be the normal thought that you're thinking, but because you're in this altered experience to which you think you're anticipating it. So I'd just like to see more definition around what these experiences mean. So we could really use that data to understand how this is actually impacting people in the long run in their mindset. I, I think that's a terrific point. Absolutely. 
because you know i wonder sometimes about the things like the definition of psychosis because i hear some researchers out there talking about the dangers of cannabis sometimes using psychosis in the place of euphoria and i don't think temporary induced psychosis should be you know a, a pet name for euphoria it could because sometimes it is not induced euphoria is, doesn't always lead to psychotic like symptoms also they use terms like anhedonia which you know most researchers like to pretend they understand but it might just be simple more simple to put in a you know bad trip in there versus inability to experience pleasure like that sounds like a long-term like personal issue like i think i have a roommate like that um but yeah like what does bad trip mean you know that could mean so many different things to people i could have a bad trip right now sitting here dwelling on something that i didn't like that happened in my day that could go really wrong for me if i'm a very anxious person and getting in a downward spiral and then if you amplify that with some psychotropic drug, then you could have an even worse trip. But what does bad trip mean? It's going to mean something to someone, whether they're in an altered state or not. Yeah, because maybe you don't like visiting aliens and you're really just like a xenophobe and that's not that's just not your jam. And you're going to really not be comfortable with that. So it's very, I, I think that's good. More clarity, maybe more clear language. Let's get away from like, you know, Old Testament scary terminology around things, and maybe things are a little more, more, more clear. Uh, you know, Nigam, your thoughts on this article? Um, do you think that this title is appropriate? Do you think that paradoxical uh, psychological effects of LSD is an appropriate sort of caption headline for this, or, or do you think these are no? It should just be the effects of LSD. So um, let's do this. This is funny. This is a um, thing that I find myself doing all the time now, looking up the exact dictionary definition of words. So let's see. What does paradoxical mean? It means you have two, two docks and one that, boat. <laughs> two meanings that don't make sense together, according to vocabulary.com. So I would say no, then uh, the title the title is inappropriate uh, because these two things do make sense together that there can be a moment. And I really like how Jocelyn was, was saying it, like I could have a bad trip right now. It's not about a substance. Uh, it's about life is this like continual experience, right? And, you know, things, people, events, drugs, uh, may come in and out, but it's, it's this continuous process. So one thing that I did, well, so I'll, I'll circle back to your direct question, Jehan, but what I really liked about this paper was that they were kind of highlighting what uh, experienced folks already know, which is that you have this, ex, you know, um, experience in the moment with the drug. And then later there's effects on your consciousness, like things that you thought about, things you kind of cleared from your subconscious. Maybe you uh, experienced some of this ego dissolution thing that Jocelyn had brought up. So it's nice, though, to see it called out in an, in an academic peer-reviewed fashion. Uh, but Jehan, back to your direct point, I, I don't really think the way they phrase it paradoxical is good because why is it that experiencing, like you said, euphoria or experiencing dysphoria, why is that not connected to the positive effects later from thinking about it and from, you know, uh, increased neuroplasticity or whatever? I, I think they are connected. So that's some feedback for the authors, I guess. 
Yeah, and Nigam and Jocelyn, that's a great point. And after I read this quote from the article, I'd like to, you know, end end the discussion with your thoughts, David. But you know, to your point, Nigam, in this article, it discusses Dr. Hoffman and his famous bicycle ride, and they say it would be reasonable to suspect that Dr. Hoffman was negatively affected by this experience. And I'm just saying reference needed there, but his description of his mental state the next day suggests otherwise. I then slept to awake the next morning with a clear head. A sensation of well-being and renewed life flowed through me. Breakfast tasted delicious and gave me extraordinary pleasure. When I later walked out into the garden in which the sun shone now over spring rain, Everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light. The world was as if it newly created. That to me sounds like a bad trip. Yeah, um, I, say, I don't know if his trip. I don't know if his trip was over. He, he might have still been in it. I think so, considering how he was around it in the pure form, and back in the day when the the company that had the patent on it could just ship it freely, kind of like to anyone. You know, I saw was, them call that out too. They're like, when we first shipped it in 1947 legally, I was like, <laughs> wow, what a time, you know. Yeah, um, I hope the the box when you got it said, please wear gloves, uh, else um, be like, I'm gonna need you to send me more LSD. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, we're going to move on to our game now. It's a new game we've never played on the show before. And um, I hope you all have a good trip with this because today's game, like all our games, our contestants are playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. And it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you discuss it and how you analyze it. And most importantly, how you think about it. And so I'm going to play guess the phony uh cannabinoid or psychedelic headline i'm going to read three headlines and i want you the group to kind of go around and just discuss which ones you like which ones you don't like which ones you think uh might be real which ones might be uh made up by me um so here we go the first headline is psychedelics are back man the second headline is inhaling cannabis linked to staying alive study shows. The third headline is move over pot psychedelic companies are about to go public from Bloomberg news. So which of these three do you guys think are real? Which ones do you think are completely made up? And I, you know, I am, I am very tricky. So sometimes I like to throw in things just to throw you off just a little bit. So, Jayhan, to clarify the rules of the game, I it was funny, like, I, I had accidentally played a game in a game before, so I, I want to understand very clearly, are, is only one of these not real? Are multiple not real? Do we ha Are we sussing them out each individually? How does it work? That's, that's a great question, and I am going to make up the rules as we go <laughs> along, and we will honor them and adhere to them. So they could all be fake, they could all be real, one could be fake and two could be real, two could be fake and one could be real. So what I would like is either reach a group consensus or at, in about three, four minutes after you guys discuss it, I'm just going to ask one by one, which ones you think are made up and which ones you think are real, unless so, you come to a group consensus before that point. Got it. So, so I can see off, Nigam. Yeah, I think so. I think the Bloomberg one is real because that's just like, it, it's kind of like a known sentiment that this is happening. So I'm not too worried about that one. Psychedelics are back, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, and the inhalation one, 
I would think generally no, but when we see like, you know, in, with COVID and with studies coming out about, you know, CBD, and I've even seen studies about um, Nick, there's this controversial thing about like smoking cigarettes is, is bad for your health holistically, but there's like some protective properties of the nicotine or something. So I, I'm not sure about number two. Um, Jocelyn, uh, Dave, what do you guys think? You know, well, I, I, go ahead, Jocelyn. Um, okay. I think, I think psychedelics are back, man. I think that's, I think that's real. Um, I think, I think, I think that one's real because it's a trendy topic right now. A lot of people are talking about it as we've seen, you know, decriminalization in like Oakland and Denver and now, um, what's going on in Oregon. So, um, arguably I don't think it's ever left, but I think there's more of this conversation that people are having today that they're wanting to get more in touch with themselves. Again, going back to the ego and consciousness. I think when I look at like what I'm seeing on social media or what I'm seeing on LinkedIn, it's like people aren't just sharing these business stories anymore. They're sharing personal stories. They're really opening up and wanting to be their most authentic selves. I've been seeing the shift in social media over the last year plus. And I think people are waking up to the idea that um, not everything is as it's we've been told it is. And so people are more interested in kind of exploring new things. And so while psychedelics have always been around more, uh, not more mainstream people or just more people are opening up to this idea of psychedelics. And so I think that's a trendy headline to get people kind of in this conversation. Um, inhaling cannabis linked to staying alive. I could have easily see that on many different pu cannabis <laughs> publishers, websites, um, though don't know about the validity of that one. And Move over pot psychedelic company is about to go public. I don't know. Are are they? Are there any psychedelic oh, there companies are. on the There's, medical side that are? There are. Yeah, multiple already, and more okay. coming. Yeah, lots of them. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say to your point there, everybody really. Um, I mean, yeah. Did psychedelics ever really leave? Um, maybe they're just getting reinvented or you know amplified. Um, but I can see how that that's real. Um, I couldn't tell if number two could be, so I was going to ask this question of what do we consider the real news? You know, uh, what, you know, did it come from, is the onion considered a credible source? Cause I can see this coming from the onion. Um, you know, the, the onion does have an editor. So <laughs> I... yeah, Jayhan, that's like, what, what a great point, David, like the rules, like uh, we're, we're, the rules are on the fly. So Jayhan, like, or what is what is fake news and what is real news in this moment? Can you define that for us in, um, in this moment? Yeah, so I would say non-satirical sources. So it could be um, uh, someone reporting on an article in an informal site. It could be a you know like a university uh, associated blog that where it's just like a student writing, or it could be a mainstream news source. Um, yeah, you know. The, well, sorry, David. And this wanna... is not an oh. open internet test. So if you are using oh, the internet, that's uh, as we are making up the rules on the spot. <laughs> I, I thought all I thought all tests were open open to. I thought like in the Zoom era, all tests were open internet tests. Uh, you know, we're just gonna pretend that you're not looking on the internet. I'm. Yeah, no, it's fine. I'm making a bad joke. Can't check. Nobody's typing. Oh. <laughs> um. So. I just think like the more when we went through that thing about like just now hearing David's thoughts and satirical sites don't count like I don't know maybe hey you guys maybe Jayhan is messing with us maybe these are all just real maybe there is no fake one I think so 
I, you know, I mean, the, the second one sounds like it could be satirical. Like, yeah, I don't see the AP publishing that, but doesn't mean that I wouldn't see that in like Marijuana Moment or ben, Benzinga or you know, Slate or Vice. Okay. And yeah, so I, oh. I, if I could just, if I were to put my, my money on it, I would say one in three are true. Two, I'm going to let the masses decide. I could see how it could be true, but I'm, I'm having so, trouble Dave, today. I'm going to put you down for an F on number two for false. So yeah. David says number one is true. Number, or, yeah, number one is true. Number two is false. And number three is true. Uh, Nigam, do you agree? Disagree? Where are you going to put your chips? All you're, you're saying, I'm saying T's across the board. Yeah, yeah, T's across. I think you're messing with us. I think you're kind of making a point here and messing with us at the same time. All right. I'm in agreement. So T's across the board. All, all T's the way across through. the board. All right. All right. Well, here we go. So for those of you in the group and you listener who thought number one sounded a bit funny and, and maybe like too silly to be true. Well, that one is indeed true as well. Psychedelics are back, man, according to tmc.edu. Uh, um, they just talk about uh, going back to 2019, a resurgence in the industry for psychedelics and their commercial production. Number two, inhaling cannabis linked to staying alive study shows. Now, this one, you know, maybe it sounds a little far-fetched, you know, too broad to be accurate. That's because it is made up. So number two was indeed made up, which brings us to number three. Did Bloomberg News really publish the headline, move over pot, psychedelic companies are about to go public. Now, it may sound like a strange exception to the rule with Bloomberg News. In this case, the exception wasn't the rule. This is indeed a true headline from Bloomberg News, which means that David wins the ultimate grand prize of expanding scientific thought through discussion and analysis and critical thinking. But great job, everyone. Um, it was a very tricky subject because I did pick an article that was a real headline, and then I just changed a few words to make the inhaling cannabis link to staying alive. Uh, so, but for all of you wondering where that data came from, it was actually from reading a study that showed that inpatient hospital survival, um, if you have a cannabis use disorder diagnosis, is actually linked to a higher chance of surviving an inpatient stay. So. Uh, but not explicitly inhaling cannabis. So there was not a headline like that. And this was a very tricky game because I made up the first headline and I searched it on the internet and it was already in existence. So <laughs> I had to go back and, and make it. Well, well, that's our show for the day. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our Trustio audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Thank you, Joe. We love you. Thank you to David, Jocelyn, and Nigam for being a part of the show and taking time off to discuss psychedelics and cannabinoids with all of us. 